It's two minutes till the stroke of thermonuclear midnight. We're balls deep in Kali Yuga. Extreme droughts and heat waves are tearing through the US. British Columbia's on fire. And if I see one more starving polar bear photo, I'm probably going to lose my mind. <sighs> they look like furry, sad people. I'm Jeremy, you're listening to Now or Never, a podcast just for funsies in the face of probable doom. My guest today is Michael Jones, and instead of running in circles shouting, WHAT DO WE DO at no one in particular, we fuck around talking about Pokemon and vampires for a half hour, before shit suddenly gets super real, when we candidly discuss our career attempts and perpetual existential bewilderment. Then, what's out and talk about movies. I've never recorded a podcast before. <laughs> I listen to them all the time, but... I've recorded exactly one before. Oh, so. I'm episode two, I see. Uh, I hope it's okay. I shared uh, episode one with Rob. He was like, oh, I was so disappointed I couldn't find it on Spotify. I'm like, no, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think it's quite to that point yet. Yeah, we're, I haven't like submitted our credentials to iTunes or anything like that. Yeah, right next to Ezra Klein and whoever else, Roman Mars. <laughs> I really want to give those NPR fuckers a run for their money. <laughs> when was the last time you've seen a Burton Ernie... Uh, from Sesame Street thing. Like an actual Burton Ernie, like, sketch? I don't even know. I saw something online the other day where they zoomed in on a girl's belly button and then superimposed Ernie over it because <laughs> belly button looked like Ernie's nose. <laughs> That's great. Apart from that, why do you ask? Oh, Christine and I looked up a couple Burton Ernie clips just to, like, see if it was anything like we remember. Seeing it with adult eyes is pretty entertaining. I remember uh, something from when I was in, like, high school. It was, like, a... a like a German video series called Ert and Bernie. They look just like Bert and Ernie, but they like pulling out like a bong and doing a hit. And like, it's like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> I feel like that's got to be the German equivalent of Seth Green. Before Robot Chicken became like a 20 year running thing, there was a puppet rabbit or something. Greg the Bunny. Yeah, Greg the Bunny. That, that was a Seth Green thing, right? Yeah. All I remember from that is, other than the name, there was a Count, like the Count from Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. His name was like Count Bleu or something. <laughs> yeah. And they wanted to like update his image, so they changed his catchphrase from Bleu to I, so he became <laughs> Count I for like an episode. I feel like I gotta watch that now. Yeah. I've been watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer with Brian. I'd never watched it before, and Seth Green is in that. Oh, really? Yeah, he plays like a like taciturn, sort of stoner, guitar player, werewolf guy. who He's like dating this girl who later turns into a lesbian witch. But Seth Green's character, Oz, he's like, he sometimes just isn't there. So I'm like, oh yeah, this is the show. And then Oz pops up, I'm like, who is this? Oh, right, she has a boyfriend, kind of, sometimes. But I guess they're super serious? I don't know. Yeah, it's like they're serious when the plot demands a relationship drama. Yeah, and it's like, he leaves the show eventually, and I'm just like, well, I mean, bye. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think there's some weird limbo that characters go to when the show forgets they exist? Like, uh, wasn't there like a Huxtable (laughs) who disappeared or something like that? Maybe it's like one of the daughters from Family Matters or both. I think it was... In the early episodes, they referenced having a specific number of children, and then later, suddenly, there was just, like, an extra daughter. Which, oh my god, that brings... Brian's gonna kill me if he hears this, but he knows my feelings about this character. In Buffy the Vampire Slayer, there's season four, the final episode ends with, now suddenly Buffy has a sister. And it's, like, retconned in that she has always had this sister, but she hasn't 
and she's brand new and the show's like well yeah she's new but like everybody's memories were altered so that they remember her always being there but she's not she's new and she sucks <laughs> and i'm like oh, she just needs to get out but i guess she's there for the rest of the series but in my head canon of buffy there's one person that remembers a time before she had a sister who popped into existence and it's like this character's berenstain bears phenomenon but like he's the only one i thought that that was gonna happen there's a character angel who's there for the first few seasons then he leaves and while he's gone is when the sister appears and then he comes back for like a little cameo in season five after the sister has appeared and buffy mentions the sister and i was expecting him to say who are you talking about because he wasn't there when it happened but no he just reacted like oh yeah i know who that is and like i think brian would be getting annoyed with me sometimes because like she'll say something like remember back when i was five and i did this i'm like no you didn't <laughs> you never did that that didn't happen i'm way into you doubling down on just like not accepting the show's hand wavy this is a character now maybe I'm the person who remembers before she was the sister, <laughs> like before she appeared. Maybe I'm the I'm the one person like standing in the middle of the town square. Like, does anybody remember? Like, she's not real. Who is this? Maybe if you go back now and watch the first season again with Brian, that character will have been there the whole time. And now this is your special schizophrenic hell oh, that God. you live in. Yeah, I'm like, oh, let's go back and watch the first season again. And she's there. I'm like, but I thought he's like, no, what are you talking about? <laughs> she's always been there. That's Buffy's sister. That's why he's so annoyed that you have a problem with her. He's just like, I don't get why you don't like this character that we've grown to love through her foibles in season one. They had a huge arc about her. That's the thing, too. He's like, oh, I didn't like her at first, but don't worry. Like, you'll come to, like, not hate her as much, just like I have. I'm like, well, to be fair, you've had 18 years since this show first aired. So we'll see. He, he assures me that she gets more bearable as the show goes on. So at least I have that to look forward to. So I saw that the Pacific Northwest is engulfed in flames and burning down. Oh, Oh yeah, I went out for a walk last night and I made it maybe a quarter mile before I started to feel the effect of walking through a giant cloud of smoke. So I turned around and I was like, oh, well, it's still so warm. Maybe I'll have my window open as I sleep. And then I could like taste the smoke pouring in through my window. Like you can look up directly at the sun. It's, it looks like a Japanese flag just hovering in the sky. It's, it's like a blood red sun all the time just hovering there. I feel like there was a big forest fire problem not that long ago as well. Was that just last year? Yeah, it's, uh, I guess it's wildfires up in BC and the smoke blows south. So it's not really anything that's happening here. And like, it's the Canadian number one import right now is just a giant cup of smoke <laughs> that's coming to cover Washington. I saw something, I don't remember what news or CNN or something. I was like, residents of Spokane, Washington have come up with a plan to blow the smoke back into <laughs> BC. See, like, that's a uniquely Spokane thing. Like, I think we can just turn on all these box fans and <laughs> blow the smoke back. I don't think it works that way. I've been playing more Pokemon Go lately. You can hatch eggs. I don't know. It's Pokemon. I still keep thinking, oh, I'm going to jump on the next generation. And I tell myself that. And then I see the new generation stuff. And then I just don't spend the money and don't do it but one day i'm gonna jump back into pokemon see i keep saying like oh i'll, I'll give the next generation a chance i wasn't the biggest fan of the last one but i'll give it a chance and i jump in it's like this pokemon is just a keychain all right and the next one comes out i'm like this pokemon is literally just a sandcastle with like a baby sand shovel sticking out of its head <laughs> like what is happening to pokemon right now but then i think back on the original ones and like muck is literally just a pile of slime with like a face so <laughs> i guess i can't really be too picky but yeah mr mime is a mime 
Tangela is just like a pile of vines with yeah. red shoes. Where did she get the shoe? Tangela is not even a Pokemon. It's just old spaghetti that's been left in the refrigerator. Somebody threw a Pokeball at it. Like, why can't I catch this? It must be super rare and strong. No, it's just moldy food. I just drew a face on my on my mashed potato that's not a Pokemon yet. Does a Pokeball recognize what is a Pokemon? Or like, is there something metaphysical? Or even physical about a Pokemon where a Pokeball is like, I will work on this. Because in the TV show, Ash catches a like rice cake thing once or something like that. But that's TV show canon. You know, I don't know. Because in Pokemon Golden... Is this really what we're going to talk about? In Pokemon Gold and Silver, there's a guy who will make custom Pokeballs for you out of little, like, seed pods that you can pull off of trees. And based on the color, he'll make a different Pokeball for you. And he talks about, like, oh, back in my day, this is what we always used to catch Pokemon. And there's also some lore from some game, I don't remember which game in the series, that talks about, like, Pokemon used to be called, like, magic beasts or something. So, like, I think... Pokemon might be a thing where in the past it was considered like magical and spiritual and then as time went on they're like let's manufacture machines to like enslave these mythical beings <laughs> for for children. I don't think anybody ever really sits and thinks about like looking under the surface of Pokemon she's like oh like look at this nostalgia I'm a kid like out on the journey with my friends but like how does the world work when you turn 10 you don't you're not in school you're like out in the world like dog fighting the only adults in the game seem to either be former trainers or work in the Pokemon industry in some capacity. Like, there's, in one of the games, you go to the Pokeball factory, and that's, like, the only piece of industry in the world. Like, what? how does this world run? I don't understand it. It seems to be entirely consumed by Pokemon. Like, every industry is directly or indirectly based. There's also the free healthcare. For Pokemon. Yeah. I mean, your character never has to... I've never seen a hospital for people in the game. There is a hotel for people in Pokemon Red and Blue. And you go there, and there's no there's no access to rooms or, like, a hallway upstairs or a staircase or anything. The lady just says, this is a hotel for people, not Pokemon. But it's just a lobby. There's no doors. There's no rooms. There's nothing. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how the world works at all. You go to a department store, and every single floor is just items dedicated to Pokemon. There's nothing for people. Yeah, that is strange. I don't remember seeing, like, restaurants or anything like that. I mean, there's the age-old question, do people eat Pokemon? And I feel like there's circumstantial evidence for and against it. Yeah, because Pokedex entries, some of them talk about really dark things, like people eating Pokemon, or Pokemon just being, like, like this Pokemon is the soul of a dead child who got lost in the forest. <laughs> like, that literally is one of them. They also reference things like... There's a Pokedex entry that directly references South America, but then I don't think there is a South America in the Pokemon world, because there's no America, it's just these like little regions that kind of look like real-world places, but they're not called like real-world things, I don't know. I think it gets more ominous if you try to think about it more. Yeah, <laughs> isn't that the way of things? The more you think about it, the more terrifying it starts to become. <laughs> How are Pokemon centers funded? Yeah, I was just wondering that. Because I don't notice any system of taxation. I mean, you never really play as an adult, so maybe you get some sort of federal income tax or something kicks in and it funds all the Pokemon. But since all the industry is Pokemon-centric, then that whole Pokemon healthcare system just seems to be in support of the Pokemon industry. So there's like this giant Pokemon industrial complex that seems to have absorbed everything. What is that thing that they say like if you don't if you're not paying for it then you are the product? <laughs> what are they grooming these trainers for? 
Well, the battling is like a huge deal, right? There's like stadiums and coliseums and it's televised or whatever. And we're only ever on, like if you're playing a Pokemon game, you only are ever on like a really strict path that's set for you. Do you think it's, there's some sort of catastrophe has like befallen the world and you're only shown, you're, it's not, you're not like on a quest exploring the world. You're like, you're like in a maze. You're trying to get from point A to point B. Like what happens outside of those bounds that you're allowed to explore? What does the world look like beyond these like <laughs> pre like curated routes that you're allowed to travel? It's like the boundaries where real animals exist and people that do other things. <laughs> I remember someone told me about a kid they knew. So this is like a couple couple steps removed. But a friend of mine knew a kid who was convinced that Pokemon exist in Hawaii. That's really where Pokemon lived. And I don't know how old this kid is, but we were pretty young at the time. Because it was, it was when, like, Red and Blue just came out. But maybe, maybe that. Like, maybe there's just these, like, small island communities. And it's, like, the prisoner that, like, 70s... Uh, <laughs> if you try to escape, a giant Pokeball <laughs> floats out of the clock tower. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And maybe maybe the Pokemon are actually running this shit. I mean, they have like godlike powers and they're all intelligent. They also can speak to each other. This is like a giant Pokemon conspiracy. You think you're playing Pokemon, but Pokemon is playing you. Yeah, the legendary Pokemon are the ones pulling the strings and like the little the little Pidgeys and stuff are just their pawns yeah. to like breed the humans into Oh my god. The master trainer becomes the new legendary Pokemon. <laughs> they get injected with like chromosomes and mutagens and become a new pokemon that totally explains mr mime and jinx and some of the hitmons <laughs> some of the hitmons. <laughs> i don't know how many hitmons are up to now but i think we're at three hitmons and then the uh the baby form that can turn into any of them yeah i don't think they've added a hitmon in a while but they they did add um two fighting types that uh look like people wearing like martial arts gi and one of them is like judo based and one of them is karate based. But they just look like people wearing clothes and one of them has like a red face with no mouth and one of them has a blue face with no mouth. And they're like, alright, I guess this is a Pokemon and not just a person wearing a mask. I don't know, how can you tell? That raises a lot of questions. And I feel like there's two ways you can go with this. But it, it's the observation that Pokemon physiology, a lot of it seems to cater to or resemble human cultural items. Like garbage piles and keychains or whatever the fuck exists ice now. cream cones and that's yeah. all really recent so that's not you're not talking about like standard evolution that takes millions of years to fill an ecological niche this is some kind of like rapidly adapting pokemon physiology thing the other way you could go is maybe it's like plato's ideal forms and the pokemon <laughs> are somehow like we have keychains because a pokemon existed that was a keychain like maybe there's like a pokemon for every like archetypal form that exists can we talk about porygon <laughs> the first man-made pokemon yeah we have to talk about that it exists as a mass of code but it is manifest physically in the world and then you can streamline it you can evolve it and make it like smoother so it doesn't look so like janky polygonal and then there's like a glitchy version that looks like the streamlined one, but with like a spiral in its eye and its tail is like floating backwards or something. So like, what's that? What's Porygon? <laughs> what the fuck am I looking at? <laughs> yeah, I remember there was some, I don't know if it was a Pokedex entry or like something from Pokemon Snap or something peripheral like that, mm. but something referred to Porygon as a crystalline entity. 
And then it was like, oh, it's a virtual entity. And then it seemed like it was only ever referred to as a virtual entity. But maybe there's like a little bit of a crystal gem core or something (laughs) that refracts hard light Porygon. But then that's not really man-made. No. And I'm wondering if... Okay, so you can... Oh, this is getting so weird. So you can also store Pokemon digitally in a computer. Yeah. You, You put it in Bill's PC or whatever. So did Porygon come about as part of the experiment? Did Bill create Porygon when he was making this storage system? He's like, oh, let me see if it can store a Pokemon. How can I test that? I guess I'll have to make my own digital approximation of a Pokemon. And then and then in testing how to retrieve a Pokemon that's been stored digitally, did he try to retrieve the artificial Pokemon he created and then it came out? And it was, what kind of weird godlike universe is this Pokemon game taking place in where people can just, I think I'll make this. Okay, now it's real. What is this? (laughs) That's very similar to Halo 4, I want to say. And I played Halo Mm. 4, but the whole time I was like, what's happening? I don't know. Is there a plot going on? Why are the elites not on my side now? Do I have to read a book for this to make sense? And I think I do. But I think there was something about like the flood was created because they tried to retrieve digitized intelligences and put it back into biology and then you wind up with like messed up hive mind biology that becomes like a computer virus in the real world yeah fleshy computer virus hmm i never played any of the halo games they're pretty fun shooters i mean you don't really have to think about what's going on too hard they they don't really reward strategizing but you know if you want something to play while you're drinking mountain dew it's pretty fun <laughs> Destiny. Have you ever played Destiny? I played the first Destiny. So, well, Destiny 2. I'll just say it's better than Destiny 1, but it's similar. I mean, it's made by the same studios, uh, Halo, Mm -hmm. or the same original studio. I think Microsoft owns Halo now, but it's sort of the same way. Like, you don't really have to think about what's going on, and there's just sort of, like, instead of the Hive, it's the Vex, so instead of, like, biological, they're robots, but they want to turn everybody else into robots, and then, like, what was the the covenant in in Destiny? There's the Cabal, so there's just like a big group of various aliens that just want to take over everything, and humanity standing in the way. It just it feels like Halo, but they wanted to make it instead of military game in space, it's fantasy in space. Yeah, it's like Halo but with magic, space magic. I like space magic. It's always that like genre blending has always been appealing to me. Something you said about robots wanting to turn everyone else into robots. I kind of want to talk about human beings' relationship with higher forms of intelligence or how uh, sci-fi, fantasy, etc. writers handle higher forms of intelligence. And it seems like a lot of times, whether they're like super advanced aliens or super advanced robots of our own creation, they always seem to have an agenda that involves human beings they either want to turn everything into a robot because okay i don't know i if you're really smart or you know you're just this like incredibly complex advanced life form why do you give a crap we don't look at ants and be like i want to turn every one of you into a person somehow (laughs) you don't what are you talking about (laughs) well maybe a little bit i'll be able to go to i'll be able to go to starbucks with an ant and just have a conversation (laughs) finally No, I know what you mean. That's something I don't really understand, like, not to bring it back to Buffy, just vampires in general. Sometimes they view humans as, like, below them and just, like, cattle-like food. But then sometimes it's all about, like, let's turn more people into vampires. Like, which is... Is it just, like, when 
when they need to like replenish their numbers because they've been stabbed, like too many of them have been killed or, I mean, I guess that's a different case than from something like robots or like, um, did you do that? Did you see Evangelion? Yeah, I saw the first series. I haven't seen any of the newer movie stuff. I don't really, the new movies are their own thing. The whole goal of the like behind the scenes villain guy in that is to like merge all of humanity into one being i'm not really sure why though like why is why is why is that seen as like the ideal to strive toward it isn't like a like the board where it's like oh we're gonna assimilate all of you so that we can like improve our collective it seems like a um if you think about like a a multicellular body like a human body we have all of these little things running around in us you know, some of some of them have different DNA. Like we we depend on a bunch of bacteria in our gut and stuff like that, and uh, mitochondria. And through all of their complex interactions, we have what we perceive as a human being. But it's not like one substance. It's a bunch of little stuff running around. And you could think of human beings now as like a hive organism. But we don't necessarily have to be the same orange juice substance or whatever the goal there was those last episodes are really weird oh they're so weird what do you think about something more like battlestar galactica where or the matrix or terminator or whatever where we create some machines and then whether it's through like us mistreating them or whatever you know impetus it's like well now we're just going to kill all humans or enslave them or somehow assert ourselves over them. See, okay, so in those contexts where we create machines and then now machines are competing for resources on Earth, I think it totally makes sense to just solve the human problem, you know? Because hmm. the more of us there there are, the, the larger threat there's going to be for the machines. It makes sense to just fix that situation. I suppose. Did you watch the new Battlestar Galactica? I never watched the old, like, 70s one. Uh, no, I haven't seen the new one. Or really much of the old one. A whole thing in that is, like, the Cylons go away and they have their own home. They're gone for, like, 60 years and then they come back to destroy humanity. And it's like, they don't really need, like, a home planet because there's only really 12 or 13, like, conscious ones. All the other Cylons are, like, it's like a robot army. And there's only a few that are actual people with, like, thoughts. Until the end when it implies that whole little drones also have their own thoughts. Anyway. But they have a religion, a monotheistic religion, that tells them to kill all humans. I should probably watch that show. I think you'd like it. Yeah, you're not the first person to tell me that I would like it, and why haven't I watched it yet? (laughs) So the thing that I think is scariest about AI is the point where AI gets smart enough that it can build a better AI, right? Where it can start like self-reprogramming. And then there's this like virtuous cycle where it it gets smarter and smarter. The Cylons don't sound that smart. Like how much effort have they put into uh, introspection and questioning their programming? Because destroy all humans seems completely superfluous. I mean, it seems like more resources would go into this battle with humans than if you just went a different of infinite directions in all of space. It's not, it's not like there's a two-dimensional map of space and, and you're like worried about like the risk board of humans placement cutting you off. There's, uh, there's up, you know, there are three dimensions you can go in. It's really easy to avoid <laughs> <There's up. laughs> relative to the risk board, you know, analogy. 
I think that becomes a uh, plot point in the show because there comes a point where the Cylons suffer so many losses in trying to like hunt down and kill the humans that I mean I don't want to spoil too much of the show. But. So getting back to the vampire thing, actually, Christine and I just watched Interview with the Vampire. I'm just kind of trying to parse it. Brad Pitt was a self-loathing vampire for some reason for a long time. Yeah. Was he always self-loathing? I don't remember. Or was it like at a certain point he started to care again? I think he always was like, oh no, I'm a vampire. This is bad for some reason. <laughs> God God doesn't love me anymore. But the thing I, I couldn't stop thinking about is vampires need to feed on human blood but you can drink human blood without drinking so much that you kill them yeah so if you are a self-loathing vampire who doesn't want to kill humans couldn't you find a consensual human blood donor that would just be like you can have some of my blood in exchange for i don't know money or fly me somewhere or you know use your vampire services could be like an equitable trade i don't know what about the whole trope of a self-loathing vampire in general because the way it's explored in Buffy, it's, the way it's explained in Buffy is that uh, vampires don't have souls. Like, when you become a vampire, your soul is taken from you, and then well, basically a demon version of your soul replaces it. So you're still yourself, but you're like a demon version of yourself. And you don't have a soul, you don't have a conscience, all that conscience. Um, and then one vampire, Angel, uh, which it's kind of ridiculous, he kills... Um, the daughter, like the favorite daughter of like a powerful gypsy clan. So the gypsies curse him. I, I see you roll your eyes. <laughs> the gypsies no, I love him. classic gypsy curses. <laughs> curse slingers. Uh, they curse him to have a soul. So he has to live with all of the evil that he's done over 200 some years. And he's like constantly tormented by all of the horrible, horrible things he did. Which that explains it to me. It's, you know, it's, it's cheesy TV trope, but it explains it. Something like Interview with the Vampire, I don't really get. It's just like, you were at rock bottom in life, and then you were given a free pass to a new life where you don't have to worry about any of the things that were making you sad, but you're still determined to be sad. Well, there is a point where he, like, gives up the last of his, his humanity, he says, when he turns um, that woman who lost her daughter, that... Um, young mary jane from spider-man mm. it was like this is gonna be my new mom now because my two dads suck ass uh make her a vampire <laughs> and he's like okay but i don't like it and then he does it and he's like i did it but i'm sad about it and i'm never gonna feel sad ever again so maybe it's just like new vampire problems you just you just take a few hundred years to adjust or something but, I mean, then wouldn't baby Kirsten Dunn's vampire have been all sad? I mean, she's, like, developmentally stunted. Like, she's always going to have the brain of a child, and children are always kind of, like, selfish in their own way. So I could see it almost being easier to turn before you become an adult. Because she doesn't really have a frame of reference to compare to. Which is, like, a whole new set of problems that she has to deal with, but... Also, uh... I remember a scene that she uh, was pretty upset that she could never have a different haircut, which seems like the most important thing to be upset oh, about. Oh, yeah. That was so weird. She, like, cuts her hair, and then it, like, magically grows back to the way it was. What a weird vampire rule. 
Like, of yeah. all the vampire rules, your hair stays the same forever. That's <laughs> That one's just stupid. Come on. You can never try out a kicky new look for spring. <laughs> yeah. And I, I get they're trying to do, like, oh, this character's bummed out because they're stuck the way they are forever. And, like, that's totally understandable from that character's perspective. Mm. But the haircut, like, I get its overtness, but what a stupid way of doing that, you know? Yeah. If it had just been, like, 40 years past, she looks in the mirror and she is still a kid. Yeah. But the haircut haircut thing doesn't make sense anyway, because like you need to be able to blend in as time passes, which I guess is, it's more addressed in the book. Um, In the book, Lestat goes crazy because he can't cope with the modern world. Then uh, Louis goes and finds him somewhere in, uh, in uh, Louisiana, like New Orleans somewhere. And he's just like holed up in an old like plantation manor, like, surrounded by like corpses of rats and when like a car drives by he freaks out because he can't deal with the fact that cars exist but i think that scene sort of happened in the movie did it i don't remember i remember in the end is different where the stat like shows up driving a uh convertible yeah like, down the bridge <laughs> like hey want to be a vampire there's <laughs> an abrupt tonal shift to like end on a positive note yeah in the book the guy who's interviewing louis uh like packs up his equipment he's like i think i have enough clues since louis wouldn't make me a vampire he's like i think i have enough clues to find that mansion where crazy Lestat is still holed up and i'm gonna go find him and have him make me into a vampire that seems less cheesy than what happened <laughs> Lestat just like driving up on a motorcycle like hey kid one <laughs> forever sup bitches <laughs> yeah that was really weird that was such a weird like character turn i'm like why 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 did he go from I don't know. Maybe he's just bipolar and his cycles are like hundreds of years long or something like that. It was Tom Cruise. He's like, no, I think I should drive up in a bitchin' car. <laughs> yeah, maybe that was like before and after Scientology. You had mentioned uh, talking about my experience having gone back to school and like coming back and now like looking for work in my field, which is sort of like other than going to work and then like hanging out with Rob or like doing stuff with Brian, that's pretty much all I've been doing lately is like trying to figure out what my next step is going to be. And I feel like that's something that both of us can relate to. Yeah, for sure. I don't know. Is that something you'd want to want to talk about? Yeah, we can talk about that. So you went to school where I went to school and where we shared an apartment for a little while. Six months ish. Six months ish. Before we, you moved out and we filled your absence with um, a guy we knew nothing about who seemed to live in a, in a sleeping bag and only seemed to own that and a hatchet. Yep, I remember this. I remember this. Is <laughs> a sleeping bag, a pile of books, and a hatchet. And a hatchet. I'm told he's a really nice guy, but <laughs> it was a little alarming. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I ever, I think I may have met him in person one time. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, so I was working for a state government agency for a few years, and I didn't like it, and wasn't having any luck moving up, and wasn't having any, making any progress with, like, personal projects or personal goals or anything, so I decided to leave and go back to school, get my degree so that I could hopefully find work um, doing something that I, you know, I'm actually interested in and uh, care about. So I did the first part. I left and went to school. It was weird because coming out of high school, what my dad would always say was, uh, because I wanted to go to college. 
right out of high school, going to a four-year university, and my dad could say, like, well, do you know exactly what you want to do for work? Like, do you do you have a concrete plan for what you what you would even get a degree in and, like, a plan for how you would put that into use finding a job? And I would say, no, but I think college is the next logical step. And he would say, basically, don't do it until you know exactly what you want to do. And I didn't. So in that way, I'm sort of glad that I waited waited on going back until I was a lot older because I had a much better idea of what I wanted to do and what I enjoyed doing. But even then, like I got up there and I started off as a, my, my major was Japanese. And then I decided, oh, maybe I should change to something else, something that would be more broadly applicable. So I changed it to English. Well, I thought about changing it to English. And then when I was talking to the uh, advisor for English, she's like, so what is it exactly that you'd want to be doing if you had an English degree? And I said, oh, well, I'd like to be a writer. I'd like to make a living off my writing. And she said, yeah, but what do you want to do for a day job? And I was like, oh, so this isn't really going to help me with anything. Okay, cool. (laughs) Uh, So I have apologies to English majors. Brian's an English major. Sorry. No, we get it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know you do. Uh, um, so I changed to linguistics, which is only slightly more, you know, applicable than just plain English. But yeah, I loved it. I spent two years studying Japanese more intensely, getting more into, like, I've always been into language, like, you know, but then, like, actually studying it in, like, a formal setting and learning about the things that I had, like, dabbled in as a hobby on, like, a, a much deeper level was really fun. And I gained a lot of knowledge and a lot of techniques taking English classes, linguistics classes, Japanese, all these different things. And so I think I'm, in a lot of ways, much better positioned to find work doing something that not only do I know about, but that I care about and can't, like, have the skills to actually do. It's just a matter of actually finding a place where those skills and experiences and, like, knowledge set can be applied. Um, which, you know, that's that's a journey that I'm still on, I guess. Since I'm still just working, I'm still just pouring coffee for you. Well, I feel like it's only going to be a matter of time. I mean, you've always been proficient with languages. You seem to pick them up. I don't want to say easily, but you seem to have like a, a knack for it. Yeah, I think I just have like a weird brain that gets it. I don't know. But uh, I'd like to know about your experience having having gone to to school closer to like the traditional age and like your perspective on on that experience now however many years out from that oh man yeah i mean it's one of those topics where i i try not to think about too much because i can get kind of ruminating but like i i was kind of like i didn't want to go to college right away because i didn't really know what was going on and I kind of wanted to see what having a job would be like, but my parents kind of thought if I didn't go right away, I was going to lose steam and I wouldn't go at all, which uh, maybe like there's no way to see that alternate timeline. So they could have been right there. But, But yeah, going to college without having like a firm idea and then also having the sense that I need to like get through it as quickly as possible, knowing like almost nothing. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to be a writer. (laughs) Or, or I thought like, well, I'll, I'll like be an editor or something. Um, but even that is like, like, which burning ship are you gonna jump onto? It's all like editing listicles for blogs or writing like promotional materials. I mean, all the entry points are kind of, I, I, I don't love it like that much. I, I didn't really understand what the industry was like. 
So, but then I like tried to get through it as quickly as possible. There was a time where I thought like, hey, maybe I want to like broaden my focus. And my bright idea was bumping up my philosophy minor to a philosophy dual major, which was, that was not a great idea. That's (laughs) like getting two creative writing degrees. Yeah. Equally useless. Because if anything's tanking faster than publishing, it's philosophy as a professional pursuit. (laughs) But I thought I would add like psychology as a minor. And then who knows, maybe I would have like kept going with that. But anyway, that didn't happen. So I just got my creative writing degree with a philosophy minor. So it was super helpful. And I don't know how much it's really ever come in handy. It helps me get consideration if people are looking for someone who has a four-year degree. Where it's just like, we just want you to have a four-year degree. Right. Some kind of like liberal arts training or something like that. But mm-hmm. I don't know if that area of focus has really helped me too much. Maybe my first career job where I was like a social media person and I had to write social media and emails and stuff like that. But since then, people seem to prefer to pay me to do technical stuff. But I don't know. Now I'm now I'm kind of back in a position where I'm like, I'm kind of burned out of doing the technical stuff, kind of trying to figure out what to do now. Yeah, I feel like that. I don't want to sit here and say, like, oh, creative types, the eternal struggle, but it kind <laughs> sort of Sort of that. It yeah. sort of is that. Like, I, I don't feel... And I, I think I think we probably match up on this. I don't feel a pr- very big um, driving force behind the idea of writing, like you said, like ad copy for even if it's like a, the greatest company in the world. I don't just want to sit here talking like, look, try our new product. But that's sort of the way things have turned out for for people who have that sort of the creative bent. Like, I'm not going to sit here and make like a a YouTube series about like unboxing toys or makeup tutorials or whatever. I mean, I could, I could unbox makeup and then put it on toys. There oh, we go. There Synergy. You go. Dang, I'm gonna put this foundation on the Tamagotchi. Why? Because you fuckers will watch it. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. A lot of the jobs that I've seen when I go, you know, I filter it for the type of work that I want to be doing, and it's all ad copy, promotional materials, uh, technical writing, that sort of thing. So. I'm sort of starting to wonder about the types of other types of work that I should be branching out into looking into because I'm wondering if it should be more of a find a job that I can stand doing to make money and then try to try to carve out time in my in my personal time to work on creative endeavors. But I mean, I I, I don't I don't do very much of my own creative like projects in my off time. Like, yeah, I think I'll play some video games now. Yeah, it is like much easier to just kind of try to dull the existential quandary. I mean, like I'll, I'll, I'll like write something for funsies and then just sort of it just sits in my Ulysses box. Because part of me, you know, part of me is like, what's the point? Like you're not you're not JK Rowling, you know, you're not going to like get lucky and have like a multi book deal and form a media empire and a ride at Universal Studios or something like that. Like the odds are very much against that. You pretty much have to like get struck by lightning twice to really make money from it. And and writers that I admire, you know, talk about how they struggle to, you know, make ends meet with their relative success. Yeah. So it always seems like fight figuring out some kind of income is really a more pressing concern. But then it's like opposed by this voice that's like, 
I thought you were supposed to follow your bliss. I thought the way to success was following your bliss. Yeah. And, like, I've talked to my dad about this a little bit because he, uh, growing up, was really into like, visual art, like drawing and even, like, a little bit of, like, painting and sculpting, that kind of thing. So he wanted to, to find work that would let him make money while also putting those skills and passions to use. And so that's how he started working on um, drafting and design visualization for, like, a state agency. So he, he does artistic stuff. He, like, renders projects for the state government. They're like, we want to see what this would look like. And he, like, make a model of a bridge where there is no bridge or you know, something like that. So in a way, I think there must be a way to do that kind of thing for people who like creative writing, but I... Uh, I don't want to do it to, like, sell people things. Yeah, and I have that same aversion where I'm like, I don't want to sell people this product that they probably don't. I don't I don't want to, like, create a craving for something that doesn't actually solve a problem or help someone in any way. Mm-hmm. Like, there's something seems sort of despicable about it. Yeah. Like, I've called it black magic. You're basically, like trying to put a spell on someone, you know, through corporate propaganda to want something they don't want. Well, if you frame it that way, <laughs> it makes it a little bit more appealing. <laughs> I guess so. But then you're kind of doing it, like, selfishly, right? Yeah. And you're not even doing it for your gain mostly. I mean, you're you're gaining some, but, you know, your capitalist employer is still uh, taking the the brunt of the value of what you're doing. Yeah. So I don't I don't know. There's just various layers of kind of gross to it for me. Mm-hmm. Having taken like the path that I did coming from a job that I felt stuck in that I didn't enjoy. I feel like I'm hyper aware of paths that will lead me to be stuck like that again. Like uh, my current job, one of the supervisors is leaving. So the manager is looking for somebody to potentially bring up to be a new supervisor. And she talked to me the other day about like increasing my hours, getting closer to full time, that kind of thing. And I probably, maybe, maybe it wasn't the wisest idea, but I turned her down because I, I don't want to wake up in five years and find myself in another job that I just, I don't really know how I got to where I was. It was just like, easy and comfortable and just sort of skated along until I'm in a place where I, again, have to make this huge turn and just completely derail what I'm doing and go off in another direction, hoping that it doesn't happen again. Yeah, no, I totally get that. I mean, when I was working for the library, I kind of thought maybe if I'm working for a library, it would be better because I at least, you know, libraries are great. Libraries are like bastions of uh, social services and public education and stuff. But even that, I was like, oh my god, am I still doing this shit? Yeah. Am I still doing the thing that when I was in high school and people were paying me to do, I already was like, oh, I'm so done with this. This is such a bummer. And I'm like back doing it again. And very stupidly, like not wisely at all, I was like, I just showed up one day and was like, I can't work here anymore. I'm so sorry. I'll do my two weeks and I'm still on good terms with everyone. And I I managed to like explain it in a way that made sense to them. But now I'm like back looking at my options for getting back into the job market. And it's pretty much like do that again, do what you were doing again, but not even at a library this time. Yeah. Yeah. I've thought about looking into a state jobs again thinking like oh maybe now that i have a bachelor's uh i've got you know a different skill set a different uh set of certifications maybe i can find something that's more along the lines of what i wanted to do and then i think but it's still state government yeah like i'm not sure if there's anything 
within that sphere that I would find fulfilling and that wouldn't just lead me to having that same epiphany where I wake up and realize I'm just sitting in a cubicle just doing something because it's in front of me. Yep. These are the times. <laughs> These are the times. Maybe I should just... <laughs> I'm just going to start delivering for Uber Eats. Uber Eats. That'll be my... I'll just take McDonald's to people. <laughs> You've been seeing those job postings too, huh? <laughs> yes, all over the place. <laughs> Uber Eats is coming to Bellingham. And then you see the reviews by the people who do it, and they're like, you're lucky if you can break even with the cost of gas. Mm-hmm. It's really... it's That's very dystopian too, because every time an industry gets disrupted... You know, a bunch of people lose their job security and the gig economy consumes it and it becomes even harder to make money by actually doing it. And then you inherit all of the costs inherent to doing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right now I'm studying for, I think I may have mentioned it to you when you were here. There's like a a test that the Japanese government administers to like certify people to be as being fluent in Japanese. So right now I'm studying for the test. Hopefully December comes around, I take that test and get the certification. And hopefully that will open up some avenues work-wise. Or the, the, my question right now is, should I just continue with my part-time job that I have now while studying for this thing? Or should I find a new job and work at, you know, getting used to that while also studying for this new thing that's coming up? But that might lead to, like... I'd have to train, change tracks so many times in the next few months, I'm not sure. So many decisions. Actually, I was just thinking about, I'm kind of getting to a point where I, I don't really, I don't know if I really believe in decisions anymore. Like, I think there's like an illusion of making a choice, but I, I don't know if you really have a choice. You know what I mean? No, what do you mean? Well, like on some level, on like a conventional level, you you like, I don't know, you, you go to a Burger King and you're like, do I want the number one or the number two? And so you're making like a choice between those two things. But is it arbitrary? Is there a version of reality where you chose the other thing? Probably not, because there's whatever made you make that choice. And I can't cite any sources for this, but I, f- I feel like I heard about a study a while ago where they found that people make choices. Maybe I'm conflating a couple of studies, but it seems like people make choices based on some emotional drive or something that happens sort of deeper than this like linguistic processing level. And then they sort of explain it to themselves. And that's the illusion where you think the part where you think you're making a choice is just the part where you're like internally verbalizing to yourself why you've really already chosen to do something. I don't know how to apply that practically, but I'm sort of thinking about like on some level, I've already chosen, maybe I've chosen like indecision right now, you know, maybe I like can't make this choice because on some level I've chosen to like put it off or there's like some deeper emotional drive where I'm like actually choosing to do this other thing. Like maybe on a deeper level, I'm choosing to give myself more time to like meditate or experiment with podcasts or, Mm -hmm. or there's some part of me that's like dragging its feet you know, where, like, I think rationally, I really need to be getting a job, like, right now. Yeah. But I, I watch myself, like, sabotage myself from doing that. And I don't think it's just laziness, because at the same time, I'm investing a lot of energy in doing these other things that are more meaningful. But then the part of me that, like, is, like, rationally thinking this through is really, like, I'm kicking myself because I'm like, why am I not doing this thing that I know on some level I need to be doing? There's got to be something happening under the surface where I'm choosing something else. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I think about that too, because like, I, I feel like I'm in a position where I could easily just say, I'm going to take this job that I found online. I'm going to apply for it. I could probably get it. 
and I'll just do it. And then, you know, I could start just like being that 30 something who was working that job and doing that thing, but it doesn't feel true to what I actually want to be doing. So it sort of feels like what I'm doing now from the outside could be seen as like, Oh, he's being sort of lazy, but I'm thinking, no, I feel like there's more to it than that. I'm at a deeper level. I'm sort of doing what I need to be doing right now. Like I'm, it doesn't look from the outside, like the traditional path that people are supposed to be taking people. You see all the, all the time online, people making these memes like, oh, people my age having kids, buying houses, and then me, like, watching Parks and Rec for the 10th time or whatever. But I feel like it, on some level that that's people not, I mean, con- conforming or not conforming to that idea of what you should be doing at a certain point in your life is sort of arbitrary, I think, because like, why, what is it that makes it so that that has to be the way things are done at a certain point in somebody's life? And if if you need to be taking the time to be living your life in a way that's more fulfilling or meaningful or, or, or just more fulfilling or more meaningful for you at that point, that's going to lead you to, to where you need to be next, I think that's completely valid. I hope so. Oh, I hope so too, because if not, then yeah, maybe I'm just being lazy. But. Well, but then the other part of the, like, we, we, we aren't really rationally making choices is even if we are just being lazy, like, I don't think it's just laziness either, but definitely feels like there's more going on, especially with the things we do fill our time with or the questions that we do pursue. Like, I, I have to assume that you also have, like, lines of inquiry that you're kind of like, like, not to get too, like, Myers-Briggsy. But if you are also are kind of INFJ-ish, I assume you have the same, like, my intuition says there's something here that warrants investigation, and maybe there's these various threads of inquiry that my, like, introverted thinking can pursue to try to suss out what's going on between these things in this territory. Mm-hmm. And it, even if you don't know where you're going, there's something that feels meaningful about that. There's some, like, weird question that's, like, driving you. So, like, all right, well, so let's put that aside and and inquiries and, and like, personal pursuits and whatnot. Let's put that aside and just say, like, let's listen to our worst inner critics for a second and say, okay, well, we're just being lazy. If we don't rationally have a choice, like if there's really no rational choice happening, and even if we rationally choose not to be lazy and to like do something, if it's not happening, then do we really have a choice? Like I can choose, I'm going to get a job right now and then like watch myself not do that. I mean, maybe that's like a lack of discipline, but I can also see myself like meditate for like two hours. And so I feel like that exhibits discipline. You know what I mean? So I don't, I can't just like write myself off as just being undisciplined. Yeah. It's like I'm me with my studying Japanese. I'll set aside a couple hours a day to, to work on that. And then like think about it throughout the day as I'm going along with doing like going grocery shopping, getting a haircut, whatever. I'm still stewing over the Japanese practice that I did earlier in the day and then I go to work the next day and then the next day after that I studied again go to work the day after that so like I have a routine and it's not that I'm not doing anything I feel like I went off track what were we talking about there's that NI jumping ahead <laughs> right yeah. I get ahead of my own self and confuse myself like, what was I even talking yeah, about yeah the TI is just like dude what the shit are you talking about where are we going yeah, calm down come down what a crazy roller coaster <laughs> how can you even function <laughs> yeah it's weird because, like, I have a sense, like, I'm going somewhere, even if I have no idea where I'm going. But there's this, like, competing voice, this, like, competing war with myself that's, like, just trust this, like, the inner 
whatever inner momentum or whatever that that feels like it is going somewhere and then there's all the like you know crippling self-doubt and (laughs) critical introspective yeah i definitely feel like i'm i don't have the same sense of spinning my wheels that i did before i left and went back to school i definitely feel like i am still on the path that i chose to shift to when i left my job and it looks different now because I'm not going to class every day and, you know, writing papers, turning home, or getting grades, but I'm still following that path that I set for myself. And it just looks different now. I'm not, and I'm not just like, it's not like how I used to be when I was a teenager. I'm not just like sitting at home playing video games, doing nothing, like literally doing nothing. I'm, I feel like I'm using so many terms like on the path and stuff. I feel like a self-help, self-help book, but. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that self-help books use that language, right? Like, there's some kind of, uh, and in, in spirituality, people talk about, like, a spiritual path. That's a very commonly used metaphor. And it, sure, it could just be that, you know, paths are things that all cultures have access to. But there is, like, a, I don't know, I feel like there is, like, a, a universal, intuitive, archetypal sense of there being, like, some kind of inner hidden momentum or inner karma or something like that that's weaving you one direction or another. And I, I feel like there is a, there's what it feels like when part of me is resisting that. Even if it's resisting that pursuing the pleasure principle. Like if I'm, per, if I'm just pursuing pleasure as like a distraction, I know what that feels like. And I know yeah. even if that feels good, there's like a way that does feel deeper. Like it feels almost like an embodied sense, like deeper. That's like, that's not what's going on. Like doing this, like doing this, like uh, play podcasty thing. I don't really have any sense that, you know, this isn't part of like a plan where I'm going to like, well, I'll do this for like five years and then monetize <laughs> it and I'll get sponsors. I mean, that's so like unlikely to happen, but there's a way that doing this, maybe just cause it's like the minimum viable way of being creative that i can convince myself to do right now <laughs> it feel like this isn't really pleasurable in the same way but it feels like more connected with that weird flow now i'm mixing metaphor with a river which is also very common you know what i mean yeah. this like current of what's going on there anyway vampires and pokemon and shit oh yeah vampires and pokemon <laughs> is there a vampire pokemon i was just gonna ask you i mean there's like zubat he sucks blood right and he also just sucks <laughs> Yeah, that got a little that got a little heavy for a minute. Yeah. Favorite uh, movie right now that you've seen recently? I sp- I feel like I'm still kind of processing Annihilation. Have you seen that one? <laughs> no, but you mentioned it when you came to visit. I still haven't watched that. Okay. Well, now I built it up so much. I feel like you're probably not going to like it now. No, because I was I was interested in seeing it when I first saw trailers and stuff. So I still really want to watch it. Yeah, I feel like with Annihilation, there's a lot you can unpack. Like, there's a lot of, like, I did a lot of chewing on that movie after I saw it. And there's all sorts of, like, themes running through it that I think are kind of fun to suss out. Mm -hmm. So I think you might enjoy it. (laughs) Have you watched um, A Quiet Place? Yeah, I saw A Quiet Place. I liked it uh, up until the very last shot. Uh, They, like, figured out the way of defeating the monsters. And then the wife, like, looks at the daughter and smiles, just cocks a shotgun, and then it cuts to black. Oh, yeah, that was dumb. It was super jarring, and then, like, uh, during the credits, something popped up saying that Michael Bay was a producer. I'm like, oh, that makes complete sense. 
Yeah, I enjoyed it. There were some just like world building elements that if I think about too much are eyebrow raising, but I feel like that happens with any anything like that. So I'll give it a pass. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too spoilery for anybody who happens to be listening, but the, 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 the solution that they come up with seems like something that somebody would have stumbled upon much earlier because it's almost been two years that the aliens have been there at the point that we're seeing this movie. And the solution is so simple that it seems like somebody would have definitely found it earlier. Yeah, it's kind of... It's like if Shyamalan's signs didn't just take place over the course of like three days, you know, if we're to believe that there were like three years of alien siege and it's not like no one's ever noticed that when you rain or when it rains or like when you sneeze on an alien or something like that, they don't like it. They would have noticed something way earlier. Or just like put two and two together. Like, you know what? All right. Spoiler alert. The bad guys are giant ears, right? They're like giant ear monsters. Yeah, they're ears with teeth and claws. You're not going to try like yelling real loud at it or something like that. Well, especially because like when they're listening, they they open the armor that protects their giant super sensitive ears. Yeah. Like, why is there armor over those ears? I wonder. Yeah, I mean, it was a cool uh, monster design. It kind of looked like it was like the Cloverfield monster if it was covered in secret ear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I read somewhere that it like it may have started as a potential Cloverfield sequel that got sort of scrapped and repurposed. Really? Yeah, so if that's true, I kind of like the similar monster design as like a hidden uh creative genealogy. But yeah, I had trouble. And also like, okay, well, if the waterfall protects you from being heard, why don't you just live by the waterfall? It's like what a lot of people are asking. You'd think there would be some kind of compound that's like constantly blasting something from speakers far away. Right. Some, I don't know. Rage against the machine. Yeah, just, it's the Zion rave from The Matrix 2, <laughs> just constantly. I feel like we could still have a lot to say about The Matrix trilogy, series, anthology, but that would almost have to be a separate thing. I agree. I kind of want to see if we can get back to the like the like adolescent, the matrix and religion blend. But that's like a whole other beast. Yeah. So maybe this would be a, a good place to end. Oh, there is one question I've toyed with asking each guest. I don't know if I'm gonna continue it, mm. but I'm gonna give it a shot. Which is if you were to survive a relatively quick shit hits the fan collapse kind of scenario and you manage to survive. What's going to be like a product or thing that you're that you miss about contemporary society? I'm tempted to say French fries mm. because I just really love French fries. Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> I'm thinking of like Book of Eli. There's still people, but things really suck. And uh, I don't think they would have really figured out how to do French fries again. Yeah, because you need a lot of oil. And oil is relatively high calorie, so it seems like kind of a waste of all those calories to fry potatoes in it. But then if it's like Mad Max world, there's oil all over the place, but would you really want to eat fries that are like made from potatoes with two heads and fried in motor oil? Those would be pretty gnarly fries. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. Playing a little flame-powered guitar while eating fries. Actually, yeah, no, never mind. I would definitely miss fries, and I would, fi- I would do my darndest to make fries a thing again so that I could eat fries while playing a flame-powered guitar. That would be pretty metal. Yeah. Um, you could have like a secret fries speakeasy you would be like the guy in this mad max economy the fry guy. you would be like paid in bullets for <laughs> supplying french fries i would have an underground resistance like the french fry black market
Like they, yeah, for sure. The guy who lives at the top of his tower filled with like pregnant women and drinking fountains or whatever is like trying to clamp mm-hmm. down on French fries, but I'm secretly supplying the the commoners with their French fries. I've heard tale that somewhere some out somewhere back out east they got curly fries. No, that's just a myth. That's just a myth. I have the recipe for curly fries. You're making me hungry for French fries. Yeah, I might go get some. I like yours. Talons was Q-tips, which I was less sympathetic to because I don't really use them. But I can see how they would come in handy if you have an earwax issue. See, I remember listening to that and all I thought of was the girl at one of my old jobs who said that she had a Q-tip in her ear and then answered her phone and forgot the Q-tip was there and jammed it so far in her ear that it uh, ruptured her eardrum. And I was like, ah! Oh my God. I had a Q-tip in my ear and then the apocalypse came and it just ruptured my eardrum. <laughs> I really wish I had both eardrums intact for this apocalypse scenario. <laughs> well, secretly what I've been doing, and I'm going to spoil it to you, is like, now that I know what you're going to have, you're going to have the fries, Talon's going to have the Q-tips. I'm seeing if I could use this to my advantage somehow uh, how, how would you use french fries to your advantage because i love french fries so i'll know where to go <laughs> priority number one is going to be seeking out your secret french fry bunker speakeasy it'll be in the basement of the guy who is at the top of the, the plateau for this makes sense literally the underground um, french fry bunker. yeah it's always nice when an underground operation is literally underground. Just aesthetically. <laughs> this is my underground flying fortress black market. <laughs> <laughs> like you've hollowed out this whole huge <laughs> subterranean cavern just so you can have some kind of floating mechanical situation. A flying city underground. <laughs> yeah, hella props for that. That that takes, I mean, in addition to tremendous resources, just commitment to the bit. <laughs> right. It's a floating continent underground and then inside the floating continent is a and inside that is a volcano but by the time you get to that like inner nesting doll core it's like a pretty tiny volcano (laughs) it's it's like two inches tall like dribbling lava (laughs) but you can make excellent s'mores over it you just dip a potato in there get your fries that's how they're made that's right (laughs) one fry at a time artisan fry that's why they're so expensive and bullet money Mm -hmm. that's true (laughs) bullet money (laughs) bullet butt oh man great world building all right man good talk talk. uh let's do this again sometime all right, for sure. I'm gonna. I'll rewatch the Matrix so that we can talk about it next time. <laughs> awesome. If you're still listening, uh, congratulations. I guess you made it all the way to the end of our second episode. Um, there's more good stuff to come, uh, probably. In our next episode, we talk to another old friend of mine, John Voice, about disaster preparedness and whether you should even bother trying to prepare and how you might even prepare. We talk more about all of the smoke in the Pacific Northwest. Thanks, BC. And we'll also talk about uh, one of John's role-playing game buddies becoming a white nationalist. Yeah. You're gonna miss the days when we just talked about Pokemon. Music for this episode by Black Ant. Our opening track was Boomerang. And our closing track is 649. Maybe, if we're both lucky... We'll see you next time.